Hey, it's the Real Estate Weekly guy. Will you buzz me in? Joe, how do you say it in Japanese? And how do you say it in English? Thanks, man. Welcome back to Writers Read Their Early Shit, conversations with authors and artists and weed uncles about the lopsided pleasures of their pre-developed, over-early, unripe work. I'm your host, Jason Emdy, down in the groove, under the goose and bourbon skies of Kifu City, Japan. And my very special guest this episode was a three-time science fair and run-for-fun champion at Prince Charles Elementary School, who, in 1979, started his first publication, a mimeographed community newsletter called The Pig Express. By 1983, he discovered punk, girls, and he saw David Bowie, The Clash, The Ramones, and Kiss. In 1986, he bought a Volkswagen bus and started going everywhere, and that was the beginning. Utah, Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, Olympia, Amsterdam, Germany, Guam, hospitals, clinics, newspapers, radio, websites, podcasts, ocean liners, submarines, mushroom farms, until he finally disappeared and ended up back in Japan where he met the perfect girl at a goat farm. Unsurprisingly, he's done lots of different things over the years to keep body and soul together, such as deliver newspapers. Ah, me too make decorative candles, make pizzas, sweat and curse to make a living as a janitor, a night librarian, an underqualified window washer, a German bakery cleaner-upper, a bicycle repairman, parking lot beer seller, a psychedelic experience consultant, a rock band roadie, grape picker, rice harvester, and a painter, poet, and postcard expert. Now, we've only recently gotten to know each other a little, but the mystical thing is that I spent my very first night in Japan at his brother Bob's house in Okazaki because Bob was working for the company that had hired me and was dispatched to pick me up at Nagoya Station in the summer of 1995 when I was young and full of grace. Bob and I always got along great, thanks in large part to our humorous mutual affection for Mr. Gordon Lightfoot. But his brother and I are even more simpatico and are currently tiptoeing around each other like heartbreaking new friends. Distinguished listeners, he's incapable of brevity, but he's mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved. It's Mr. Dave Olson. Welcome to the show, Dave. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. And it's not postcards. No. And I do, I do enjoy our postcard correspondence so very much. Me too, man. How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. The, uh, my darling wife and adorable son are getting ready to head out to tea ceremony. I am uh, ensconced with a tall glass of mugicha and a pile, a binder. I actually put together a binder of various uh, checkpoints throughout my life, starting with mimeographed newsletters through to, I stopped it at 20 years old. So I stopped a couple years before you met uh, my brother, who we'll just call Commander Magnum, because he is now a commander in the U.S. Navy, stationed at a point which I'm not authorized to discuss. He's come a long way from doing the hokey pokey <laughs> in, in various, <laughs> various no one, no classrooms one in Okazaki. It. No, nobody. Certainly not me. Uh, okay, man. Well, before we get to your checkpoints, I have a couple questions for you. Okay. Oh, my goodness. So I'm just going to warn myself not to overthink the questions because when I, I listened to your podcast, which I listened to pretty much all the episodes, I think, uh, I always spend the rest of the week thinking about how I would answer each of these questions. So I'm just telling myself, first thought, best thought. Okay. Have you ever tried eating a piece of paper? No. Okay. Now, in some of the bio information that you sent me, you said, met REM Life's Rich Pageant Tour. Did you mean that you met the band or you just saw the tour? No, I met the band. Really? Um, from a young age, I figured out how to get backstage at concerts. And throughout that time, I just moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. And REM were just kind of breaking out, uh, like breaking out in, from, from clubs to theaters to arenas. And I had wanted to see the band on previous tours, but I wasn't able to get into the Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver, though I had been successful in, in previous times. I think because they thought I was a, you know, when I was a 14 year old boy, I looked like a 20 year old girl maybe with my flowing locks and my rosy cheeks. 
But mm -hmm. I got backstage and had a lovely conversation with Bill Berry and Peter Buck, who was wearing a great pair of Creeper shoes that I still remember. Guadalcanal Diary had opened that show and they were there hanging out. And all of them were kind of wide-eyed because this was a, that was a super exciting time to be a member of REM, I think, that they were just taking off but hadn't become the biggest band in the world quite yet, which they would a few years later. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. Top three REM albums for you. Um, well, I'm going to go with a weird one for, for my favorite, which is Dead Letter Office, which um, mm -hmm. is, is all the B-sides and outtakes and oddities yeah. because I love that behind-the-scenes feeling of it and them goofing around and hitting Getting record on everything. And playing yeah, yeah, King yeah. The They're road. singing yeah. Roger Miller songs drunk and having a great time. Uh -huh. And... You know, that, that first run with, with Chronic Town, Murmur, Reckoning, and Fables, you know, gosh, it's really hard to choose a favorite of those. And although it is the 40th anniversary of Chronic Town, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go with um, Fables of the Reconstruction because mm. it's just so atmospheric and so weird. And I think, you know, the, the first few albums were, you know, when a band goes in to record those first few albums, they have that several years of songs of making songs up as they go along done and then fables it felt like okay well we got to make some new things and a new aesthetic for this and for for the for the next one i just um you know i i i, I, I sort of left the band after out of time which i didn't really care for and uh um, but recently i got the one um it's not automatic for the people it's the other one that has the black and white cover. I just got it um, in a double album, New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Yeah. I just got that and I'm really enjoying that. So I'm just going to throw that in there just, and it's a double album re-release. And because I hadn't really tapped into those later stage albums, um, they all feel a little bit new to me. Which writer, living or dead, would you most like to punch in the face? Oh, geez. I'm not the... Uh... The answer, the answer is Dostoevsky. <laughs> I, I would rather give him a hug because he seems super sad. You know, when I find a writer that I don't really care for, you know, and um, I just sort of move off from my sense of uh, perception. You're dodging the question. You're dodging the I, question. Come on. <laughs> I am trying to think, and I, I'm trying to stay with my ethos of first thought, best thought. But, yeah, but you're not. Uh, you're dodging. You're shifting. Gosh. Shifting. Can, can we come back to that one? I'm going to let my subconscious sure. think about it for a minute. Okay. I'm just going to doze off for five minutes when I come, when I come, when I surface again. How did you meet Allen Ginsberg? I was in uh, Boulder, Colorado, summer of 91, uh, traveling with uh, another renegade poet in my Volkswagen bus, going between dead shows and festivals and hijinks. And we were in a uh, getting a bite to eat somewhere in Boulder. He was doing a reading that night. Um, we were, me and my buddy were the only ones um, in the restaurant. He came in and took a table and I'm like, holy fuck, that's Allen Ginsberg sitting right there here. And uh, like, how do you react to that? Um, so I went over and asked him if I could borrow the mustard and he was like, go ahead. And so that was sort of an entreaty to a, a, a conversation. He asked if we were coming to the reading that night and we mumbled something about not having $15. Yeah. And then um, I went to the toilet and uh, he was, my claim to fame as Allen Ginsberg was at the urinal next to me. Uh, we exchanged awkward uh, pleasantries and, um, and then we dined and dashed. So at least we left an impression. Uh, and I did not go to the reading that night, which was ridiculous, but you know, $15 was like a tank of gas and a 12 pack of Milwaukee's best in those sure. days. So yeah, that's priorities, isn't it? <laughs> priorities and bad decisions. Yeah. 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 And you know, <laughs> at, at that point you think that this will opportunity will just present itself 20 times in the next, uh, in the next months. How did you first get into the, the beats? Can you talk about, uh, how, I, you know, your, your intro, how it started? Yeah. Um, you know, this is a topic that's been on my mind because I just did it, uh, and I don't mean this to sound like a plug, but I just did a, a, a video about the Kerouac exhibit in, in Kobe, Japan. So this question has come up with some interviews I've done about that. And I was, I had my Volkswagen bus and I was climbing mountains and I was going to concerts and I was experimenting with all sorts of things. And I was reading all, all the seminal texts and I was living this life and I got turned on to Dharma bums. And I was like, here's some guys driving around, climbing mountains, drinking port wine, 
this is what I'm doing. And then that was rapidly followed by Lonesome Traveler. And then on the road, I was reading while on the road doing my first road trip to the East Coast in my, I had a 74 turtle top uh, Volkswagen van. And I met a guy who was had his business that he was going to go sell flag t-shirts to all these university bookstores or something, something. And he wanted to needed a, a, a drive. And I said, well, great, man, we can take my van, you pay all the expenses. And I'm just going to sit in the back and drink and, and read books. And I remember reading on the road, we were stopped somewhere in Connecticut, went to visit a girl I knew who was working as a, as a nanny. And the folks that she was nannying for were really sketched out that this group of weirdos pulled up in a Volkswagen bus with stickers all over it and smoke coming out the doors. And I dropped that, uh, I, and I, I had probably my cutoff overalls and my copy of On the Road. And he's like, you're reading On the Road? Man, I read that back. And all of a sudden, I was his best friend, and we ended up staying there for a couple of days. And uh, But this all happened, you know, 86 to 89. Um, mm -hmm. Somewhere in there, I dropped out of high school and started at the community college. And I had a professor there um, who I expressed my interest in the beats because, you know, at the time, it I, 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 don't, I think it's changed a bit now that the beats weren't really, sometimes there was a lot of eye rolling about um, the beats and their, their importance of liter, in the literary world. And this professor, Larry, who's still a dear friend of mine, um, you know, he had a frame of reference and he turned me on to some ephemera and artifacts about um, who matches up in real life with these characters and started to tell me about the mythology of the, the typing of the manuscripts and pulling these people from real life. And start, and so it allowed me to kind of connect the dots. And the, the big revelation for me was I'm doing this. I'm out here with my weirdo friends and I'm writing all about this and documenting it all and filling up notebooks and that I am part of a continuum and a bigger uh, tradition. Um, for years, I would always be like, hey, you know, Jack Kerouac this and Gary Snyder that. And people would be like, uh-huh, yeah, okay, what? Um, now, certainly, um, there's a lot more public awareness. But those were the three books. Um, those writings really are the ones I come back to uh, so, so much. Maybe this is the question I've been leading up to. If you Ooh. could somehow go back in time and do something differently as a, as a kid or as a teenager so that you would be a better writer as an adult, what would you go back and do? Well, what I just alluded to earlier is I would have learned to type properly. <laughs> I mean, I remember um, my both my parents, my mother was an amazing typist, um, like a savant. And I always just thought that one of these days it would just sort of come to me automatically. And I can bang out words, but I'm, I'm uh, sloppy. So just the pure logistics of that, you know, every point along my life, I've, I've said yes to everything, like one-way tickets, going places that I don't know anything about, um, going and exploring all the dark corners of humanity that I could have come across, going, you know, from the Ivy Leagues to the alleys and, um, you know, every kind of odd job or whatever. I've done all, I've done all that. Um, you know, I went to, I, I got a Bachelor of Arts degree, spread over five universities in 17 years or whatever. Um, and I, you know, I always thought I would do something like you've done recently. Congratulations on your master of fine arts degree. And I thought I would do that, but it just hasn't been the, 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 the path for me. So, you know, I, I have a, a copy of a letter from Salinger where he advised, you know, a young writer had sent him asking for advice. And he's like, the first thing you got to do is get a fresh typewriter ribbon because, you know, I can barely read your, your uh, letter. <laughs> and that sort of practical advice <laughs> has mm. always kind of um, appealed to me. Yeah. I love typewriters and I love producing content, but I'm constantly hindered by my, uh, my, cl my clumsiness. That said, you know, I'm a lousy joint roller too. And that's another thing that I've spent my life, much of my life doing, um, currently on hiatus. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just, a, I'm a, I'm a little bit clumsy. Depend despite my hands looking like a hand model, I'm a bit clumsy. <laughs> Such beautiful hands. That's what I noticed about you first, man. Every, uh, everyone does. Yeah. It's the fantastic beard and the beautiful hands and everything kind of gets just pushed aside. Oh, he's just another glamour puss. Even Commander Magnum goes, God damn it. His hands. <laughs> His beautiful, beautiful hands. <laughs> oh, lordy. 
Let's get to some of your early shit, Dave. All right. What do you got? How far back in the past do we go? <laughs> well, you alluded in my introduction about my first publication, 1979, The Pig Express from Surrey, British Columbia, Canada, on a mimeograph. And I actually have copies of, of the first couple of those. One, the headline is about the eclipse of the sun and has a little instructional manual about how to make a box, a reflector box, to look at the eclipse of the sun so your eyes mm. don't uh, burn out. It talks about the building of the new Guilford Library and a few other very important things. The second one talks about the general manager of the Canucks, the uh, ice hockey team, going to Sweden to recruit players. But instead of reading from those, I'm going to go to the same era, which is one of my prize-winning science fair uh, exhibits, which was really I pretty much my life sort of peaked by seventh grade at Prince Charles Elementary. <laughs> and I do wonder if that Prince Charles will now be upgraded to King Charles and I'll get a new diploma, a whole new set of ribbons. But uh, besides being Kerouac's centenary, uh, the birth of Kerouac, and the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses centenary, it's also the centenary of the rediscovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb, Valley of the Kings number 62. And this was from uh, my science fair exhibit, and I had a handout, because of course you should have that little handout that people can take with you. So before me is that, that glorious purple of a mimeograph. Uh, at the top, underlined, is a typical day in the life of King Tutankhamun. And this is typewritten, yeah. and I'm sure it was me typewriting it because my mom would have never made a couple like little minor inconsistencies. Um, and so I'm just going to jump right into it. So hold on. <clears throat> How old are you at this time? Uh, 10. 10. So you're typing away two fingers. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, you know, for folks who don't know a mimeograph, it was, it was also called a ditto machine. It's kind of like a, a sheet with a carbon and then a kind of um, uh, a press sheet that then gets taken off and put on a roller and goes through this, this roller. And, and people will often remember the smell because it has kind of this unique yeah. um, uh, fragrance to it. So like um, my mom did the church bulletin and, you know, doing real estate flyers and things. So I come from, uh, and my, my grandfather was the same way doing kind of like the barbershop newsletters and like a family newsletter. So I always just thought it was just normal to have um, one of these mimeograph machines or a copy machine um, around. Mm, okay. And the ink comes out, the, the result comes out as this, this wonderful sort of purplish color on this um, paper. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, a typical day in the life of King Tutankhamun. The young pharaoh's day starts early when a slave awakens him and helps him to get dressed. After a great start. Mm. He wears a skirt made of linen, which is sometimes see-through. Saucy. The texture of the linen told of your wealth. Only the very finest and softest were worn by royalty. A very coarse weave would have been worn by a slave. And there's the slave again. The slave would also help you put on your crown. The pharaoh wears different crowns for different occasions. The blue crown is the war crown. The white crown is the crown of Upper Egypt. The red crown is for the lower or delta region of Egypt. Today, the young king will wear both the red and white together, uniting both Upper and Lower Egypt. Although on ceremonial occasions, he wears a very heavy, elaborate crown. Now, with the science fair exhibit, I actually dressed up in costume as the young king wearing the white and red crown so this tied into my um actual costume so there i am like were you, you know were you wearing a skirt skirt made of linen? yeah yeah i was wearing a loincloth there's photos of this saucy. and uh yeah yeah saucy <laughs> saucy it was it was almost see-through yes i was bare-chested with sort of a reproduction of, of of an elaborate medallion kind of thing though made of felt on the table was a uh scale replica so to speak of the tomb in the Valley of the Kings with a backlight, and then inside was all kinds of golden ornaments. Um, mm. This was all handmade, of course. And uh, um, and then you could look, and there was a little sign that says, look inside and see what Howard Carter saw, to reproduce that moment when Howard Carter uh, looked inside the tomb and saw that it hadn't been ransacked. So, you know, if you're going to do something, you really got to be immersive. Got to do it right. After his... After he is dressed, the pharaoh must win favor of the gods. He performs a ritual each morning in the temple. He burns incense for an offering to Amon. This is different from other civilizations because incense is usually not used. They use animals instead. 
The Pharaoh's day is a long one. He has taken to listen to his advisors and to architects and tending to the affairs of his country. You can see he's very put upon, you know, it's, it's no easy paper out here. Hmm. He must correct all that needs to be corrected. Dispatches from other countries are read aloud to him. I'll, he dictates letters to a scribe who then sends them wherever they have to go. And I love this part because dispatches is still in my regular vocabulary. And he dictates letters to a scribe, which really I'm always calling for a stenographer because of my poor uh, typing uh, skills. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, he goes to the court, checks on architectural plans, entertains people from other countries. The court is filled with very wealthy. But I'm just going to skip to the end here about sometimes at night feasts are given and people overindulge in food and get drunk. So I was already always curious about this getting drunk thing. Mm. Foods that are most popular include fish, bread, figs, honeycomb, grapes, dates, ducks, and geese, and many vegetables. I'm unspecific about which vegetables. Many Generally, vegetables. the feasts yeah. are not too often, and the young pharaoh and his wife retire to the bedchamber, and the slaves <laughs> undress them for the night, which sounds a little saucy again, and so to sleep to prepare for another day. So very diligent... Uh, life you know around that time uh the king tut exhibit had come to seattle and i went to see that and i was mesmerized um, and i still remember that visceral feeling of seeing the the famous gold mask and whatnot it you know it's kind of like seeing the a van gogh painting for the first time or yeah but dave aren't aren't you worried that you're you're pretty casual treatment of the slaves in this description. Of I know, right? It's super embarrassing. But but I, I you know, I've listened to the episodes and this is a, supposed to be very cringy. So I, I need to put a very large disclaimer on well, this. You well, know, okay. No, yes. Um, Don't you I, think that's sort of I'm interesting? I'm in a way endorsing that, slavery. That something that you'd write when you were 10, you know, you're, you're focused on the pageantry and the preparation and all the stuff yeah. that goes down all day long. Whereas now it would be, why isn't he talking about the slaves? Look, look how, look how cavalier he is about the slaves. Things have changed a lot since you right. wrote and about the the the, the <laughs> day. For sure. In uh, what's this? Nineteen. Yes, I have changed since I was ten years 19, old. Yeah, a little bit. You have seventy nine, eighty. So is the world. Yeah, yeah. I for sure, and also has this scholarship about um, King Tutankhamen. You know, he was always dismissed as a as a gimpy boy king. Now there's a lot more knowledge. Mm. Um, whether or not the, the slaves were really even a part, because the slaves are associated with building pyramids. This was a completely different era. I don't really know. There was, um, I had a sense from a young age that there was a, a lot of ability to put fiction into things because there wasn't really real scholarship about these things. So as soon as you put something down on a printed page, that becomes the thing. But yeah, it's certainly, uh, and... and <laughs> Um, I didn't want to, you know, if I wanted to be a little bit more, um, uh, you know, gentle on myself, mm. I would have read the part about the uh, GM of the Canucks going to recruit Swedish players because, as 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 hockey fans know, this became a big thing for Swedish hockey players at the time. It was it was uh, a ridiculous notion. Instead, I've gone out here and 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 um, obsessed about the slave dressing him and undressing him and his wife because he's got a really busy day ahead talking to his advisors and correcting everything that needs to be corrected. Let me so make dictators it clear. and slaves. I'm yeah. not blaming yeah. you for Egyptian slavery practices in, when is this, 5000 BC or whenever it was? You know, I, sure, man. I think yeah. I, I'll let you off the hook for that, but many wouldn't. What's next right. after the after the Egyptian adventure? Well, after the Egyptian adventure, the next big project was Vom Fanzine, which was um, I did with uh, a guy called Kamaljeet Gill, uh, who actually recently passed away um, in, in Surrey. And this is how I learned to get backstage and get um, access to shows and bands and free records. Is if you have a publication, you can you know send away and records would come in in the mail. And you could get backstage and it was a little bit like um you know the almost famous movie where you're a little kid and you're just pretending to be a big shot and all of a sudden you find yourself backstage with bands mm, yeah um but because that's sort of so much in my wheelhouse and 
it's, it makes me look a little bit cool because I got like a thing with the Ramones and SNFU and stuff. I'm gonna and and, and I'm gonna stay with the little bit more um, offside things that no one that no one's seen. And um, so when I was 15 or so, um, due to some changes in the family, uh, I moved to Utah as I mentioned earlier. And at Orem High School, I, I started realizing how how powerful words could be. And I mentioned the getting the permission note to read Catcher in the Rye. And at the time, Martin Luther King Day was not celebrated as a holiday in Utah. So with some friends, we did protests about this, making giant Roland long banners, which is a, feels a little bit Jack Kerouac on the road-ish because it was big, long, continuous scrolls saying, Martin Luther King died for your sins, just to get, you know, uh, raise awareness and whatnot. But in going through my personal archives recently, I found um, a copy of the Orem High School newspaper. Uh, this is March... Uh, 1987. So I would have been 16. Um, and uh, uh, the, my headline here, it's a letter to the editor, I'm upset about student teachers. And the student teacher I'm specifically talking about actually had a piece right above this. I'm not going to say her name because, um, you know, now with the internet, people will look her up and be like, hey, you know, I heard sure. what you did with Dave and whatever. So and I'm, I might have the only copy of this newspaper still in existence. <laughs> Dear editor, many of we students at this mecca of learning have recently experienced a few interesting weeks with BYU students at the helm of various classes. BYU is Brigham Young University, the Mormon-owned university that is like the behemoth and runs the county. Um, I find it unnerving, if not terrifying, to think that one day in the not too far future, poor, unsuspecting students will be spending endless hours with these incompetents. Oft times these amateur instructors become drunk with power after a short period and the rest of the time is spent pretending to be the Messiah. They treat our school like their little playground, gossiping, insulting students, comparing opinions about students with their cohorts, complaining, giving out derogatory remarks whenever they feel the need, chastising, trying to counsel us about things they have no idea about, making stupid jokes and remarks, then trying to be your best buddy. Another thing, why do we, the students, have no say in the selection? Perhaps the potential teachers should be placed in charge for a two-week trial period, seems reasonable, after which the students can decide if both sides are benefiting. This may sound as though too much power is given to the student, but we signed up for the teacher, not just the class. Mm. So polemic, shots fired at the BYU student instructors, and that uh, continued my parade to the vice principal's office talking about my uh, bad attitude. What was that at the start? Unnerving, if not what? What? I didn't catch the unnerving, if not <laughs> terrifying? What if not it? terrifying. To think that one day in the not so far future, poor, unsuspecting students will be spending <laughs> endless hours with these incompetents. Yeah, making stupid jokes and remarks. Hmm. Um, you know, it appears on the same page with a, a, another uh, editorial that says cheerleaders are people too. And students are responsible for school spirit. I would like to affirm that I also believe that cheerleaders are people too. <laughs> right? Just so that's uh, on the record, yeah. man. Yes, yes, they are people. And uh, and then I had in the next edition of the newspaper, I had um, uh, a letter to the editor uh, arguing the importance uh, of uh, that condoms should be uh, used and you just that's just not a topic you talked about in utah like sex before marriage was com i mean this mm. is a school that has a little a mormon seminary on the campus and i realized you could sign up for the mormon seminary class and basically just gave you a free hour so i would go be jeff spicoli in my volkswagen bus yeah um arguing for for condoms and cheerleaders well <laughs> and 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 to read catch in the rye allow <laughs> me to read catch in the rye and walden these subversive texts so <laughs> At this Orm High School, there was one bastion of awesomeness, and it was a program called Unified Studies um, that, that gave you um, a, a, an English uh, outdoor recreation and a science credit and had a long waiting list to get into this program. And it would be like every other day you do this whole interdisciplinary program. And uh, Brother Bob was, uh, since we've talked about Brother Bob, I brought him into the mix here. He was in this program. So I would just go to this class Again, like Jeff Spicoli, just being, are you in this class? I am today. And in this, he made a little chat book, which I helped him uh, make, um, The Adventures of Bobo, Gunther, and Momoshans, which I think was stolen from some other comedy skit. And it has uh, Bob's top 69 list of just like different random things he likes. 
um, which we made together, a bunch of little illustrations. And Bob's a very good illustrator, so it worked out great. There's illustrations here of folk guitars and Volvo station wagons and Roman gods and uh, bolo ties and cactus and little <laughs> tiny tree frogs. And then also the adventures of Mr. Boris. Uh, now, Mr. Boris was a teacher at our first elementary school called Harold Bishop in Surrey at the same time as I wrote the, around the, the, the paper route era. And Mr. Boris was like a, a, a real life, you know, like the first hippie I really knew. And this is like when I was, you know, second, third, fourth grade era. Bob was in the class above me. And he had this awesome teacher. And recently I uncovered the class picture. And sure enough, there's the dude there with his long hair and his headband. And he was allowed to be a teacher. <laughs> so um, I, I, if, if, if it's all right with you, I'd like to read you a short passage from uh, this chapbook. Yeah. Um, Mr. Boris's new home. So just imagine um, Mr. They, Boris. They let him wear his headband in the class photo. That's what I'm thinking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I also great. found a, an essay Bob wrote in his class that was, um, they, they went on a tour of a McDonald's restaurant. Yeah. And, and they had to send him a, a thank you, a thank you note for the, for the tour. And Mr. Boris was encouraging them to use... Um, uh, uh, various words for, for pancakes. So like how many words for pancakes can you think of? Not just thank you for the pancakes. They're flapjacks. They're, they're hot cakes. They're, you know, so many, so many words for, uh, for that. So he was really pushing their boundaries of their vocabulary as well. So good on him. Yes. Uh, Mr. Boris's new home. Mr. Boris was an artist who wanted to share his art with everyone he could reach. To accomplish this, he thought he would purchase a new school bus and make it his home. At the National School Supplies Services Auction in Colorado, he found a 24-passenger unit that he thought would serve his purposes best. In it, he put his bed and a comfortable couch after taking out the seats. He painted designs on the seats and sold them to make money for the project. Very entrepreneurial. Mm. Some stained glass windows were put in place of the regular bus windows to add beauty. At a shipyard, Mr. Boris found a water pump to serve as a sink faucet and an icebox. On the trip to the secondhand shop, Mr. Boris purchased a small wood-burning stove. A T-type chimney was put on to accommodate this new addition. To keep the heat inside, some throw rugs and carpet samples were laid on the floor. Some insulation covered some of the windows not being used. Along some of the other windows, he put window sills to place his cacti and other plants upon. He also grew sprouts and wheatgrass, of course, you know. Mm. For a kitchen, he put a small two-burner stove run on propane. The propane tank was strapped to the rear of the bus to keep it to code. Very important. Very important detail. A large metal wash basin in addition to the water pump made a nice sink. The icebox provided him with ice water. When he had finished all these improvements, Mr. Boris felt his new home did not have enough headroom. So he spotted an old Volkswagen microbus body shell and welded the top half to a hole put in the top of the school, put in the top of the school bus. This lovely new addition provided additional light and room to move around in. Mr. Boris loved his new home and traveled from coast to coast, up into Canada, down into Mexico. He met many friendly and interesting people. Many people enjoyed his art as much as he enjoyed making it. Mr. Boris enjoyed his new lifestyle, but soon discovered that in today's society, money is power. He got an executive position in some food additive corporation and now drives an ugly new BMW. The end. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> and there's a fantastic illustration again by, uh, uh, by Bob. Uh, it's, it says, color the bus of Mr. Boris. And it's a beautiful rendition of the, you can see the tea, the tea chimney, the propane tank strapped to the outside. Um, you know, the, the bullhorns on the front of the bus and on the side of the bus, it says, if dogs run free. <laughs> if dogs run free, why not me? Yeah, right. Yeah. Could you color Mr. Boris too? It didn't actually have the picture of Mr. Boris. And for years, Bob and I talked about, you know, what became of Mr. Boris and, you know, done the requisite internet searches. Um, uh, as far as we knew, he lived at, you know, there's still nudist colonies in the lower mainland, Vancouver area at the time, and that he lived in one of these places. And, you know, it was a different time in British Columbia. Sure. But so that kind of connects Bob and Mai's experience in Surrey at Harold Bishop Elementary School, later at Orem High School, with this um, uh, certainly enjoyable tongue-in-cheek. And yeah. so just to describe the chapbook, it's, um, you know, the kind of the Kinko's textured cardstock cover 
with um, with with uh, a, a binding on the side because I've always loved making little chapbooks and and finding different ways of binding. In fact, I, I worked at the Kinkos for three months just so I could use the machines after hours and and whatnot. And it's it's uh, typewritten and then copied and and uh, and cut um, and with the illustrations. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful little addition. And I'm not sure, you know, so I'm sure uh, uh, Brother Bob will, will listen to this. And so he will now know that I have possibly the only copy of existence in this properly archived um, and inventoried um, in my collection. To add beauty with lovely new additions. Well, you can foreshadow that, you know, how Bob pivoted his life to become an engineer, you know, with a few notes about the propane tank strapped yeah, to the outside, the sure. code, the T-shaped chimney. You know, there's some uh, there's some nuance there. <laughs> some hints and tips to the new direction. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I had um, quickly moved on to University of Utah, one of my many university stops, and I found this whole um, New West kind of culture of writing, um, you know, kind of Raymond Carver-esque, but with cowboys, short stories, and a lot of cynical professors, you know, because I thought I would do the I would rock right through an MFA and I would, you know, have a job like Larry at a community college and mm. be the, you know, the long haired bearded teacher turning people on to uh, weird books and teach them how to rebel. And that time at University of Utah kind of <laughs> being around that and I would go to uh, these writers conferences, I would, you know, get college credit for going and volunteer. And by this time I had a fake ID, you know, I was 18, 19 with a, a, a a terrible fake BCID saying I was like 24 and I'd, you know, and that there was just new craft beer bars in Park City and I'd be around all these like writers who were coming in. And that's where I learned from a guy called, a poet called Jack Myers that, um, you know, you can write great poetry, but you're never going to make a living from it. You make your living from talking about writing poetry and going to mm -hmm. workshops like, you know, conferences like this and teaching at university and playing the whole 10 year game. And I looked at that as sort of like, that could be my future, and I didn't want it to be my future. Um, the professors at University of Utah, you know, they had credentials, but they were still getting up and going to a, you know, a, a, a job, right? And there was none of the, you know, trudging through the rainy streets with your hands shoved into your overcoat pockets, being Leonard Cohen, part of the writing world that you know I I thought. You know, that's the best that's what part. you do, right? Yeah, sure. That's the that's the great part. And you know, because I was reading the, the beats, and I was just like, I, I did. I hadn't really done the, the the math yet to realize that you know most of these characters died, you know, rather young and rather decrepit, and that it's a whole racket of sending these things around to publications and the whole um, self pity perseverance lecture that writers love to do about I sent out and I got 312 rejection letters I got 78 rejection letters and then finally I published this thing and uh-huh and and so what's the point so I thought that yeah I wanted to write <laughs> and I wanted to do this but I need to find an, an audience for myself and I always thought that next month I'll work on the publishing part and mailing things around but from that point onwards, I was I was mobile and I was living out of backpacks and couch surfing and Volkswagen vans. So the, just the logistics of having an address and a printer and, you know, the wherewithal to look up in the, you know, there was the books like the Publisher's Guide of, you know, 1989 and where you submit manuscripts and going through these kinds of things. When I worked as, as the night librarian, I'd go through those books and be like, okay, I'll send this stories to this. I'll send stories to this. How does a guy like Raymond Carver get published? And at the end of all those stories, you saw someone who was alcoholic and working at a university and had been through three divorces and was really probably not making real money from their things. So the <laughs> option of just going out and living and collecting stories and working working that 
math out at the end, um, next month, next month, and then, you know, somehow a couple decades go by and suddenly I have, you know, shelves filled with these things that in this last two years since I've been here in Japan, not only have I welcomed the sun and done reams of paperwork for various passports and citizenships and insurance schemes, I've been going through all these things now and going, so what becomes of these things? Um, and now for the first time ever, someone aside from the 12 people in that MUD 201H Honors Creative Writing course, um, your dear listeners um, have, you know, have heard this, this story. What's to become with all of these things? You know, I'm, I, what's, what, you know, what's the audience? What's the end result? You know, to me, I just love making chat books and making the stories. And there's still the routine of, do you fill up an envelope and send things off to a publisher and wait for three months or six months to get a rejection letter? Or do you, you know, self-publish and make kind of a dodgy looking book by one of the self-publishing schemes? Or do you find a, 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 a diligent uh, small boutique press like you work with and make the beautiful uh, volume, like, you know, the whole mm. form factor of, of what you did with uh, heads tired, heartaches, what, hands tired, right? um, is lovely, right? And I love that. And to me, small is beautiful. The whole racket of doing the endless promotion for a piece of work to me is um, exhausting. You know, I have real physical limitations now on what I can uh, do. But this guy at 18, um, writing that was just like, this is it, man, I'm going to do this forever. And I'm going to write 100 of these stories. And on the desk here in front of me, I have dozens more of these things that I wrote um, that became less angsty um, and less rebelling against everything and more trying to be like, real short story writers write about um love and death and angst in a dip you know in a very adult way so i went from being an angry young man to a grumpy old man in the course of like 18 months <laughs> i think the primary urge for you was to have a good time first off and then to notate that good time like you were you were taking the time to write it down to make sure yeah. it was it was, you know, whether that's a jog to memory or or just because you like the notebooks involved, because that's part of it for me, man. I like nothing yeah. better than filling up a notebook and putting it in the notebook pile. You know, my spine tingles just at the thought of it. <laughs> and you know, leading up to my fiftieth birthday, I I did a project going through all these things, some of these things that have surfaced here today, and I found year by year artifacts from each year of my life that I could sort of chart this creative course that have gone on my life since, you know, since I was very young. And I see all these same touch points. And I can see that I was, you know, I'm not that much different, aside from writing so <laughs> casually about slavery, um, mm. than I was at that point. And all these things have meaning, all these things have heart, and intention. And whether or not they have a marquee name attached to them or not isn't really the point. The point is that do they exist? Were they done with integrity? Were they done with craft? And do you have the courage to float them out into the world? Those are the things that I find important mm. rather than the delusions of grandeur of having, um, you know, a, a something <laughs> on a yet another Amazon top 10 sure. list, sub list of a sub list of a sub list. Um, let me read a, a, a little bit more. So, um, I have here in front of me a whole stack of short stories from the University of Utah. And this is when I was going to classes when the professor was like, if you haven't read all of Hemingway, just get out of here right now. And uh, deifying uh, Raymond Carver, which has some, you know, that's, that's all right. Um, and, you know, Faulkner and, you know, uh, roll your eyes at the beats and yeah. uh, don't experiment with form. And I love experimenting with form, you know, that's, that, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm cool with Ulysses and weird punctuation and weird sentence structure and let's chop it up and cut and paste. But no, this was every sentence comma by comma had to be completely deliberate and dry. So with that in mind, I wrote a whole series of short stories and I was, um, and I was going to do a thing where I read first paragraphs from each of those. But if I do that, um, we're going to be here for, um, I think we'll say that in, in a couple of years. Maybe you'll have me back on the program. Okay. And that will, and because this is this is my 
19, 20-year-old version. So coming out of the community college, going to the university, thinking that, okay, all these, everyone here is going to, you know, we're reading Theodore Dreiser and we're doing the, the obnoxious creative writing class thing where you've taken 25 copies of your short story. Everyone reads it and goes around the room making a condescending comment about it. Yes. You know? And I just like, this isn't anything what I, 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 I want. Um, but I'm going to read one first paragraph and then I'm going to, and then I'm going to finish with a, a, a snippet of poetry that I wrote in Providence, Rhode Island, where after I left um, the, the university, because I thought all I was doing is getting into debt and, you know, going to these classes I, I, I wasn't enjoying, standing in lines, trying to appeal to people that just weren't my people. So I headed off on, with a drive away car to Providence, Rhode Island. I was an unwelcome couch surfer guest, which I've spent most of my life trying to make up amends for. <laughs> and I was suddenly surrounded by uh, this East Coast literati. And I, you know, Brown University is right there and Rhode Island School of Design, which are like just two places I could even like unfathomably like different and, and cool and leafy. And, you know, Edgar Allan Poe slept here and it was a whole different experience. And I started hustling my way writing um, term papers for students because I realized it wasn't about being a great student. Like I had learned, oh, you got a great student. And then you go to Yale and Harvard. I went to these schools and I saw that it was a bunch of fuck ups um, who had connections. There's 10% who were like the keeners that had great grades and great to get into scholarships and they get their picture taken. The rest of them are people with connections. And so in order to sort of support myself to buy, you know, shawarmas and weed, um, I was writing term papers and I would be all proud because I was getting good grades with term papers at Brown and whatever. But I, I wrote a poem from there. So I'm going to read two little things. The first is destined like a great idea. This is University of Utah. I'm 19, I'm 20 years old thinking, all right, let's learn how to write short stories like yeah. a, a grown up. Yeah. I knew I was completely in love with her the night she made the bean soup. 14 kinds of beans in a crock pot like a suburban housewife would have done. She blessed like she meant it, and I told her I loved her. And I still felt and sounded inadequate, as sincere as a postcard. Hooray, postcards. I felt stupid afterwards, like she always made me feel. Not stupid like regrettable, but more like adolescent, like I should be awkward and nervous and gangly. But I'm not sure I was, because she seemed to think I was witty and occasionally brilliant, and she kissed me. She kissed me often. She was gentle and fluid and involved and right. Not like she'd had a lot of practice, nor did I ask, undignified, I thought. But she kissed with the reckless precision that would humble you if you let it. Like someone carefully destroying you in a friendly game of pool without you noticing. Like it would be a waste of time if they weren't fully involved. This was good, I said, and sometimes I thought she thought so about the same about me. She was vocal and always aroused. I liked this, all of it, especially when we were in the desert in the spring or she would tell me stories about Spain or when she'd see me on the street and follow me for blocks before she would yell to me. Or when she told me about her sister and herself and how she would touchly, touchly, gently touch the brashest of my artifacts. And when she would eat with her fingers out of the jar and how she would lie in the bed and watch everything I did, watch me fold my socks and brush my teeth and I twirled a pencil like a drumstick when I would write a letter. She looked and watched and stared with the eyes of a statue or a madman staring at the sun knowing that he really couldn't go blind, unnerving at first and then only lonely and the thing that has made me cry the most of my life cry big sloppy silver tears. So I'm going to leave the rest of that story for now, but um, just to show what I was trying to do with coming out of the gates with a first paragraph that mm. the, and you know, this was, this was a class. I was the young guy in the class and I was living in my van like Mr. Boris. I was showing up in the class with the cutoff, uh, you know, overalls and the tie dye shirt and the long blonde, ponytail and the little neck beard trying to grow it out so I could get into the bars to see, you know, fire hose at the bar and grill. Yeah. And the rest of, of the class were, you know, in Utah, a lot of the young fellas, especially go on, on missions. So they come back and they sort of start their academic career at, you know, 21, 22, 23. And there's a sense of haughtiness and, Oh, I've been out to, you know, I've seen, I've seen things. And so, I loved being underestimated and I loved uh, surprising people with the way I would come in. I would write stories written from the point of view of a woman or writing a story in second person um, and, you know, try to do something to stretch my legs, but also to show that I was not to be trifled with. 
So that mm. was one little example of, of that. Um, <laughs> later, realizing that this was just a road to ruin and, um, and uh, <laughs> disappointment, um, a drive-away car ending up in North Carolina, or South, one of the Carolinas, and then hitchhiking on the I-95 in November from South Carolina to Providence, Rhode Island in November, which was one of the more foolish things I've ever done. There was at least, there were several incidents involving guns on the trip. You know, had to make some fast exits from vehicles, some dodgy Greyhound stations, um, trying to regroup and make phone calls to try to find. Anyway, I ended up in Providence, Rhode Island amongst all these kids whose parents had saved up for universities. And, you know, there were services and shuttle buses and leafy courtyards. And I was amazed by all of it. Um, but also a little distraught because this wasn't my world. Road sign 33 and a third. Life clipping by at 33rd, th 33 and one third speed. Standing here, hugging nothing, counting dusty nickels. Start looking what the road signs say. There are many things I don't have. Tickets, dollars, ways, and means. Sunday Providence, gray like last week, with my bargain matinee cough syrup nod, candy coated, Hold on to my thick head. Next wave goes to Mars. Next, even further. Watch the clothes spin in their fluff and dried nebulae. I've tried it all on bended knees, but I'll just think here and sit about lost months and misplaced friends, haggard days, and ice cream cones. I'll stand here holding nothing, try to think how I got here, then figure out where I am. I'll stand in a shady place, counting my nickels and happenstance, empty out of pockets on the ground. You can't trade lint for bread and cheese. It's cloudier now than it's been for years. I spent the days moving quickly, years dreaming loosely, and hours waiting patiently, and weeks muddling and fidgeting until now. So this was me feeling like, how did I not end up in this world? This seems that it would have been a good fit for me. And here I am, the West Coast hippie dirtbag, trying to you know, hippie endear myself bag. to... Tweety kids and um, and doing errands. You know, there's things about doing laundry for people and, you know, hiding out at movie theaters because you could kill an afternoon in there just somewhere to be in and out of the cold. Um, and it wasn't too long after that that um, I bought a one-way ticket to Amsterdam. And then my early days were officially over. Many thanks to Dave Olson for being so generous with his time and his early shit. I think we talked for just over four hours. He's an interesting cat. Thanks also, and as always, to DJ Max for the beats, Wayne MD for the artwork, Joe MD for help with the intro, Sasha MD for help with the outro, and Maho MD for being so cool about all the time I spend on the podcast. Thank you to you as well for listening, wherever you are. Really appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show, there's a link in the show notes. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review helps a lot also. Back in three weeks. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. Sasha, did you think that episode was interesting? A little bit. Do you want to come on as a guest one day? No, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye.